Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, COVID-19 numbers continue to rise in Ontario. Rumors are floating that the Premier is going to roll back some of the protocol in these hotspots. The United States has blinked and dropped the 10% tariffs on Canadian aluminum. And it's all because of the election. And is Canada aware of China inside its own country and their activities? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Day three of back to school during a COVID-19 pandemic, where a trip to the bathroom is like a military maneuver. Stand back, boys, I'm going in. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. <laughs> oh. Oh. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think that is the best one so far. Uh, that's just me. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12.11. It's 900. HML. I'm Scott Thompson. He's not even here. He's at school. Uh, Will Erska back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show uh, on the air as we have been for 27 weeks. Uh, thanks to Will and Liz uh, for working so hard again on a great show today. The Ontario government will bring before Cabinet the idea whether restrictions need to be put back in place for certain hotspots uh, that are seeing spikes in COVID-19. To talk more about all of this, Sabrina Nangie is with us, Queen's Park today. Sabrina, thanks for the time. hope you're doing well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an exciting day here at Queen's Park. Thanks for having me. Yeah, lots going on. Obviously, we're going to cover the press conference after 1 o'clock. What can you tell us? What are you hearing? What are the rumblings? We're hearing, obviously, they're going to start cutting back some of these protocols. Yeah, the premier this week basically all but confirmed that there's going to be some dialing back uh, of the restrictions on gatherings, which currently is 50 people indoors, 100 people outdoors, as long as you're keeping your two meters distance or wearing a mask. Um, he has pointed you know, repeatedly to three hot spots, Toronto, Peel and Ottawa, where we're seeing most of the new COVID cases soaring. So we're expecting some type of restrictions on those phases. I'm not clear on what on what the restrictions will look like, but we're also hearing that it won't apply to businesses. And we have heard the premier, you know, repeatedly this week taking aim at private partiers, telling people not to party. And so that's very likely what these restrictions will will look like. It's, it's probably lowering those numbers. Uh, Sabrina, you brought up the key point that I think everybody has been interested in, and that is how will this affect uh, restaurants and the hospitality industry, which we obviously know have been suffering greatly during this, uh, but, you know, the fine balance between that and public health. But as you're saying, you're not hearing any information that it's going to affect those areas in any way. Yeah, uh, like I said, the everything's being uh you know, held close to the vest right now. Um, but uh, I, I have been hearing, uh, you know, maybe just rumors uh, from that that it won't apply to the businesses. Right. And and we have seen sort of that. The Premier is talking about private parties. We heard this week, now that Frosh Week is back in full swing, there's a lot of uh, co- college parties happening. And this has been a source of rising infections. But I've got a lot of questions about what this will look like. Um, you know, enforcement even of private parties here in Toronto, the bylaw officers, they're not really willing to go in and break up these private parties that they're hearing complaints about because they're worried their own officers could get sick and infected. So they're mostly focused on breaking up outdoor parties. So I think that's one area, the enforcement that I'm really, uh, I think I, I, I want to get more information on that. 
Uh, you bring up a valid point, too, about we're obviously waiting to see what happens with the return to schools and the returns to uni- uh, return to university. Now, we know a lot of that is online, but still there are students in residence, although the common areas of the campuses may be closed. They are now flooding out into the local areas there. Uh, a- any thoughts on that? Uh, any mention of that again, as that is the cohort that seems to be uh, the bulk of the new cases? Yeah, there's, um, I mean, it's, it's a trouble. It's troubling. And we are seeing younger people, you know, the ones who are, are the source of, of these rising cases. But we had talked to the uh, college's minister, Ross Romano, this week, and uh, he doesn't seem like he's willing to, uh, you know, start sharing information um, on individual outbreaks at schools in the way that the at post-secondary institutions in the way that the government is doing for schools and child care centers. And, you know, that's partially because colleges and universities are, um, autonomous in, in some form here in the province. But that, that just speaks to the fact that this government has, you know, been selective and cherry picked of which outbreaks they're willing to be, uh, they're willing to share more information with the public. Um, and, and I think when there's a huge outbreak, uh, that's when we, that's when the media picks it up. That's when we hear about it. But there's been a lot of, uh, secrecy around, you know, which workplaces, which retail shops, uh, even universities, you know, it's sort of up to them to release this information. So I think uh, the data reporting could be another uh, another thing that might help people, especially as the colder months are coming and we're all moving indoors. I think it will just give the public a better sense of, you know, how to keep themselves safe. Uh, we, you, we, you talked about, uh, obviously, the hot spots uh, being Toronto and Peel and in Ottawa and such. Uh, are we to, uh, under the understanding that these uh, new protocol will affect only those areas or will this is this just a regional thing or will this be a, an Ontario wide thing? That seems to be it seems to be a regional approach. You know, even in the, the staged reopening, we have seen the government take a regional approach. Uh, you know, the premier is fond of saying what works in Kenora is not going to work in downtown Toronto. And it's true that, you know, many public health units still are reporting, you know, fewer than five cases. Many are reporting zero. Um, but it doesn't, you know, just targeting Toronto, Peel and Ottawa, which, you know, are hot zones, doesn't really address. Um, things like cottage parties. So we heard about a car, uh, pa- party in Muskoka that had, had spread and led to more infections. Um, one in nearby Ottawa, you know, only 10 people were there. So that's, uh, you know, only 10 people were there and that led to 40 infections, two child care centers shutting down. So uh, I think even, you know, tamping down some of the size of the gatherings, there's still a lot that that doesn't address. And, and I don't know what the solution is. Um, you know, can I have friends over for dinner that aren't in my social circle, but we're, we're close, you know, I think there's a lot of nuance to some of these rules that, um, that, that it's, it's really up to public health to, you know, start communicating a little better. Um, and, and that way then people can understand, you know, their, their actions, but really just the, just changing the restrictions from, from 50 to, you know, maybe half of that, uh, it doesn't really address some other uh, aspects and settings where we're seeing cases crop up. Uh, so what you're thinking we're going to see, and again, this is all speculation until we cover the press conference yeah. at 1 o'clock, is that you know the social gatherings indoors at 50, 100, I believe it is, outdoors, we're probably going to see stuff like that uh, get drawn back a little bit, bubbles probably staying at 10 and such. But there are those uh, social gatherings of, of more than 50 uh, indoors that are most likely going to be affected here? Uh, yeah, that seems that seems to be what what people are talking about now. I think that that will target you know the big parties that are going on um, 
but there, there's still so much else. There's still so much else that we're all still figuring out. So I think that this will be um, a living, uh, a living uh, right, yeah, experiment or guideline that they put out for us uh, this week. That that we might end up seeing, you know, more more tweaks and changes as we're all figuring this out. Uh, do you think more education is required here? Like, obviously, if you, you know, I mean, you and I, we've been covering this forever, it seems now. Uh, but obviously, we went through the summer. We saw the cases slowly start to tick down. We got them down below 100. We saw stage two, stage three opening up. And, and, and towards the latter part of the summer, we were, we were more out and about, albeit with, you know, the protocol and, and social distancing and masking and such. Do you think we've let our guard down just a little bit? And, you know, although we have open things up and, and whether it's social gatherings or the hospitality industry then maybe we're in a, you know we're thinking we're out of the woods here do you think that that this information will will make people rethink and, and perhaps make sure that they're that they're uh, that they're taking part in the protocol yeah the, the numbers are scary and uh, you know D- dr. David Williams our chief medical officer of health he conceded that you know some of the public messaging might be confusing and people might not know you know, what uh, what exactly the rules are um, and you know what they should be doing, especially younger people. Uh, summer summer is almost over, and I, I do think people are you know getting a little stir crazy. But the pandemic is still very real, and as we're seeing with the numbers creeping up, um, I think it's the onus is really on Public Health Ontario to you know just drive that message home for people so that they they know um, what they should and shouldn't be doing to protect themselves. Uh, anything more on testing? I see we're up to about 29,000 tests today. Uh, I remember at one time we couldn't get anybody to get tested. They were shutting them down or moving them around. Now it seems obviously with this uptick, people are interested more in being testing, uh, tested. Have we heard anything more on expanding those or the pharmacies that we're hearing rumors of? Yeah, so I think that's the one silver lining with the test on the testing side of things is that people want to get tested. Uh, you know, they're they're going out there, but the problem now is that especially with school coming back, there are huge lines. There's huge lines. People are waiting for hours. We heard about a line in Ottawa that was a kilometer today, and the, the people at the front of the line got there at 4:30 a.m. So I think the result of that is we're either going to see you know people just giving up and not not wanting to wait in line and not getting tested, um, which, you know, is, is so it's so problematic. But the premier did promise this week that in tandem with these restrictions uh, that, that might be ro- that will be rolled back, that there will be an announcement uh, regarding the testing. So he has been in talks for weeks with Shoppers Drug Mart um, and other pharmacies regarding allowing them to do testing on their premises and he's I the premier suggested that that would be more asymptomatic people who are going to the drugstores and that would free up hospitals and assessment centers to test people who are more sick and showing more symptoms that's uh you know there was a pilot project in Alberta I think most people think that's a great idea but like I said the premier has been in talks with shoppers drug mart for weeks on this and he did say this week that he just is waiting to get the final ducks in a row but I think a lot of us are just kind of saying that now is the time and especially with schools coming back um, that now is the time that that need we need help uh, with with the testing capacity and it'll be fascinating Sabrina what happens in two to four weeks from now because what we're seeing now really has nothing to do with school reopening this is the effects of two uh, two to four weeks ago uh, you know post uh, towards the end of the summer it'll be fascinating once we get towards the end of September beginning of October because then we're going to start to see numbers coming in in regard to going back to school 
That's right. There's always a little bit of a lag in the numbers. So I think, um, you know, the premier has already started bracing the rest of the, the rest of us in the province. He's already started bracing for, you know, bumps that are coming up. And he's assured that, he, that he's got it under control. And we are expecting this fall preparedness plan with more details, you know, coming imminently. But um, I do think that uh, there's a fear that things might get worse before they get better, especially uh, coming up with the colder months flu season, there's just so many factors compounding uh, this pandemic problem. Uh, any more on uh, from the education minister and from uh, boards or teacher unions? Obviously, uh, we're embedded in the first week right now, or I guess the second week, uh, if, if people went back on a staggered start. Slowly, it seems as if, as if everybody are getting their legs in all of this. Uh, any more on that front? Uh, specifically, if we do start getting an uptick, uh, the move to online, even more online learning. Yeah, um, I mean, I think all schools, uh, the, the aim is to have all schools uh, fully up and running by September 21st, but, but most are coming back now. Um, we do have, you know, the, the reporting of school cases, and there were 12 new cases reported today. So we are still seeing, you know, we, we are seeing cases already in schools. Um, but I think the, the problem uh, might be beca- becoming, uh, the problem might be, where we're hearing from parents who, you know, they might not be feeling well or someone in their school has tested uh, positive and, and that entire class or like all the kids in that that's interacted with, with that student or teacher, mm-hmm. they have to self-isolate or self-monitor. And so I think that uh, it seems a bit, um, you know, there's a, lot, it's, there's a lot of interruption. I don't know. Yeah. It seems like there might be fits and starts in this school restart. Um, and it, it, I, I think that for, you know, the kids who are um, trying to get back to normal themselves, it might, it, it might be a little, it might be a little tough and it does take its toll on them. So um, yeah, we're, we're all ears. The education minister will be, will be up today and, and we'll be hearing about, you know, how this is going, but it doesn't, it seems to be steady as she goes right now. It doesn't seem like there's going to be many changes. Everyone's keeping an eye on things. And like you said, you know, we were not going to really see how things are going um, case-wise until, you know, a couple of weeks of, of being in this. So, uh, yeah, we're all, we're, all, we're all bracing for it. Sabrina Nanji has been with us, Queen's Park today, talking about uh, restrictions uh, being pulled back a little bit in regard to COVID-19. Sabrina, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. All right. Uh, as we see cases uh, slowly start to tick up, yesterday they dropped down a little bit to 251, uh, but again today up over 300 with 315 uh, new cases uh, reported today. 29,000 tests uh, are being done, which is I found astounding because remember when they finally got the testing stuff figured out, uh, not that many people were going to get tested. Now, of course, as we're seeing numbers tick up, that has changed and lineups are beginning to form. And uh, we'll see what the Premier says uh, to address that coming up a little later on this afternoon. Uh, let's get a little update. And as far as where we are and, and where we think we're going, let's bring in Dr. Ahmad Khalid, medical doctor and health policy expert. He is with us now. Ahmad, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. So your thoughts, uh, Ahmad, on, on where we are. Obviously, we were down below 300 yesterday at 251, back up over 300 to 315 today, 29,000 tests uh, being conducted. Uh, what are your thoughts on where we were, where we are? It wasn't that long ago, Ahmad. We were saying how stable we were. Boy, things change very quickly. 
And yes, and that's the nature of the beast. It's called COVID-19. Things can rapidly change overnight. We're looking at 350 new cases today, which is the highest since June uh, 5th. And that is alarming and concerning to many people involved. We know, like you said, uh, there are long lines around assessment centers to get tested. That needs to be resolved. It's good that people are getting tested, but we need to make sure that people are not waiting uh, exceptionally long times to get the results or get tested to begin with, which can deter- deteriorate uh, the process overall. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the Ford has to say in terms of the long assessment lines, but also about the social gatherings and how we're going to limit it moving forward. Your thoughts on that? Obviously, it appears at this time it will affect the hotspots of Toronto Peel and Ottawa. And as you mentioned, so, uh, social gatherings, uh, that appears to be where these are coming from. Obviously, we're still seeing like high 60 percented, uh, two thirds of the people uh, that are being infected are between the ages of 20 and 40. What do you think we should do uh, to curb that specifically? Well, I think the social gathering numbers will going to decrease. What, what's going to be very interesting to look at, Scott, is whether that's going to apply to businesses, which are going to have a big impact if we start limiting how many people are allowed to go to attend businesses outside in the economy. So I think what we're going to see is that he's probably going to reduce the numbers from 50 people indoors to 100 outdoors to probably half of that. I won't be surprised if that's the policy to move forward. I think the reason for that is the numbers are high and they're alarmingly high. And so if we don't get ahead of this and we don't figure out a way quickly to address the, the, the increase in the numbers, we're going to be in a very bad situation. And I think that also reinforces the point about face masks. So uh, I'm, I'm very curious to find out how many people are actually sticking to wearing face masks at social gatherings because those numbers tell us that it looks like the, there's a good number of people who are not wearing face masks in public or not practicing uh, safe hand hygiene. So limiting the number might help with those, but it won't be the perfect solution to reduce the number. As I'm, I'm looking back at, uh, and I guess we should clarify too, that what we're seeing now is not the result of school. That will come two to four weeks from now as that works its way through the system. What we're seeing are, are, are issues, things that happened two to four weeks ago. You know, I'm looking back at, uh, at past, uh, show sheets here in, 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 uh, fact sheets and, and, you know, the end of August, August 27th, we're down to 118. August 26th, we were at 88 new cases, and then it seemed as soon as we hit uh, September, mod, things just started to slowly uh, trickle up. How do you think we got there? What, what do you think set us up for that increase we started to see at the end of August, beginning of September? That, that's something that we're all trying to figure out. What happens is then uh, that for the public to sort of increase the numbers, is it A, more people are just simply getting tested? So the more people tested, the more results we have, the more likely we are to find mm-hmm. cases. That could be a possibility. We know that there are long lines and assessment centers across the country. We know that more people are getting tested. We're running more tests and generating more results. So that could that's one factor that can contribute to increase in numbers. But also, Scott, I think there is this idea that people might be relaxing uh, the rules around COVID-19. And, and by that, I mean is that, you know, look out into your own communities, how many people are actually still wearing face masks, how many people are still sticking to social gatherings? I could tell you firsthand from personal experience, I have noticed in the past week or so that social gatherings seems to be increasing, that people are not as diligent about wearing their face masks. Uh, I even noticed uh, in, in public bathrooms that people are not really washing their hands as they used to at the beginning of the pandemic. So it, it might seem, and this is just a speculation, we don't know the evidence behind that, 
is that maybe people are not taking the virus as seriously as they were at the beginning. And, and, and just to be fair here, this is a generalization. I think there's still a big number of people who are taking the virus seriously. Uh, it's just a matter of can we increase that awareness? Can we keep the pulse on the matter, which is that COVID-19 is real threat and that we must continue our due diligence of making sure that we're getting ahead of it? You know, and I think you, I, I think you're absolutely correct, Ahmad. And when you think about it, you, coming out of the summer, stage two, going into stage three, by the end of the summer, things had relaxed quite a bit compared to what they were uh, at the beginning of this pandemic. And I think we all have to remember what got us to where we are and how we flattened that curve in the first place. And I, I think perhaps people did think, well, you know, we are seeing the numbers go down below a hundred. Uh, people are getting out more. It doesn't seem like it's a Affecting anyone, and and I think that is a lot of the case. Is is just people have uh, weren't perhaps as diligent or aren't being perhaps as diligent as they once were. Do you think it requires sort of a re-education period here? Absolutely. I mean, I think with any public health interventions, it's about re-awareness and raising that alarm whenever possible, and educating the public about what the COVID nineteen is. COVID nineteen is a, a vicious virus that is looking for a human host, and if we don't control it. It will get out of control. We have examples. Let's look at the U.S. Things are not looking well there. The number of deaths are increasing. We don't want to get there. Uh, I think it takes uh, all of us to be involved. Listen, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll share something with you, Scott. I asked recently uh, 200 students in my class, how many of them had known somebody who's been affected by COVID-19? And more than half the class raised their hand. So even if mm. you have not personally uh, been uh, impacted by COVID-19 or know somebody, trust me when I say there are many people out there listening to the show right now who have been impacted by COVID-19, whether on a health basis or economical basis. So the effects of COVID-19 are real. They are impacting our economy and our health status. We must take this virus seriously. It's not the time for us to just you know, think that the virus is over until there's a treatment, uh, effective treatment or vaccine in the market. Uh, our awareness and our alertness to COVID-19 is real and must continue. Uh, yesterday, reporting 67% of new cases between the ages of 20 and 40 years of age. What message do you have to to that demographic? And again, it's not that these people are all partying. We certainly don't want to paint that picture. Uh, we certainly have, st- uh, have seen with stage three, more establishments opening up, more businesses opening up. So everything is opening up. But, but what message do you have to that demographic specifically who are seeing over two thirds of new cases? I think my message is the same to all demographic, to all Canadian people, everybody who's here listening to this show is that, you know, the race uh, and the fight against COVID-19 is tiresome. We're all tired of this. I empathize and I understand. It's been months of us trying to deal with this pandemic. Many of us, including myself, are sick and tired of COVID-19. It's important for me to say that because we can't belittle how much effort this has taken or the toll it has taken on all of us. But unfortunately, the virus doesn't care how we feel. Uh, the virus just cares about finding a human host. And so Who's we need 45? to prevent that. We prevent that by making sure we wear our face masks when we're in public, making sure we're washing our hands or using hand sanitizer, maintaining social distancing. Three simple rules that can have a dramatic effect. We've seen that they're effective. We've seen them in our communities that they do, do work. We have, the evidence is there to prove to us that those simple interventions can make a huge impact on our death toll and the impact on our economy. We don't want to get back into a complete shutdown. Let's not get there by actually practicing mm-hmm. those interventions. Is this the second wave, doctor? I don't think it's the second wave. I think that 
the numbers will keep going up and down uh, as we're seeing. I think that the second wave, when I think of a second wave, I think of a dramatic crash in our system. Right. I think about the high numbers at the beginning. Are we heading towards a second wave? Possibly. Uh, I think we just need to see, can we get more tests done? Can we get the results out? Can we reinforce the messaging? Maybe we can prevent this massive crash in our system. Dr. Ahmad Khalid has been with us, health policy expert. Ahmad, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. 1244 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. A new study from Western suggests that a stroke could be the first presenting symptom in younger patients with COVID-19. Obviously, as each day progresses, we learn a little bit more about this coronavirus. We'll share that with you when we return. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, President Donald Trump took uh, some questions from uncommitted voters in a town hall on ABC last night. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer and correspondent with Global News. Reggie's with us now. Thanks for the time, Reggie. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. Reggie, do you get uh, annoyed when talking to Canadians? Do you ever get tired of trying to decode everything the president says for Canadians? I mean, it must just drive you nuts. Well, I mean, look, for four years now, we've all been trying to figure out what the president is trying to say, whether he's on the record, whether he's off the record, and whether or not what he's saying is going to be reinterpreted as a joke by members of the administration. Uh, But at the end of the day, last night, that town hall really kind of gave uh, uh, the first upfront kind of glance as to what President Trump is thinking when he's outside of one of his comfortable venues, uh, when he's not surrounded by people that are either familiar with him, are into him, or really like his policy. Last night, was was maybe the first and only town hall we're going to see of the president. Uh, here's a clip from uh, the president speaking about how he upplayed his response to COVID-19. Well, I didn't downplay it. I actually, in many ways, I upplayed it in terms of action. My action was very strong. Yourself, yeah, because you... what I did was uh, with China, I put a ban on. With Europe, I put a ban on. And we would have lost thousands of more people had I not put the ban on. Uh, So your thoughts on his response, Reggie, uh, does this play any different? Does it matter? Well, I mean, look, the president was was lying when he was talking to that that uh, that that person in the crowd at that town hall, because the president is on tape saying over and over that he downplayed the event, uh, despite the fact that his own press uh, press secretary says that he didn't downplay it. You know, he, he tried to get around it by saying that he actually upplayed the event. But at the end of the day, the president's decision to not come forward with vital information potentially could have cost uh, a significant uh, number of deaths in this country and to see how he interacted with these people that were in this town hall that are not direct supporters of him or that were one-time supporters who have now switched uh it really made the job difficult for the president to try and sell his messaging uh that he really and truly has been kind of dancing around for the last several months it put him in a really difficult position is this a blast of reality for the president I don't quite know if we would say it's a blast of reality because the president hears these kinds of critical comments on a daily basis. It's just whether or not he absorbs them and whether or not he, uh, he, you know, tries to move forward and make good on any of the questions that he's asked or any of the, uh, you know, the, the failures that are, are brought up to him. Uh, he was pushed back a number of times by George Stephanopoulos last night uh, moderating that town hall. Uh, and the president pushed back by tr- simply trying to say everything that he did over the last several months particularly with coronavirus, was good. Even when he was approached with a question about race relations in the country, the president tried to downplay the number of black people that are killed by police in this country by saying that police are doing a great job. 
So while the media is often criticized for cherry picking uh, different facts from the president, the president is often accused of cherry picking the realities that are in front of him. So why do I mean, many people asked after the Bob Woodward? I think he did 19 sessions with Bob Woodward. Uh, many were asking why he did that. Why do a town hall? Is this a good presentation for him? Well, I mean, look, there are people in the administration that are probably asking that same question as to why he put himself in a position where he could be called out uh, in center stage. But at the end of the day, this is a president who enjoys publicity. He likes to put himself uh, in the center of a spotlight. He likes to be able to kind of rise above those that are surrounding him. We've seen this now for four years. The difference is we're in a situation where he doesn't have kind of uh, daunting crowds all around him if he's in these town hall situations. It's much more intimate. It's much more interactive. Uh, and we'll have to see whether or not he wants to do this going forward, because last night, you know, being up against a crowd that, you know, aren't these kind of doting fans around him was much different than the venue he's typically used to, which are people just kind of latching on to every word he says. And whether or not he's, he's saying something that's factually correct or not, they will eat it up. Uh, do you think this is an indication of what we may see during a debate, just simply with uh, either a moderator or his opponent holding him to task? Well, I mean, look, last night, you know, the president essentially talked himself into circles and said a number of, of things that simply weren't uh, true or simply kind of backpedaled things that he's put on the record himself. Uh, and just earlier in the day, he had been saying that, you know, he, 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 uh, he practices for debates by going to states and then decided to start talking about the stock market. If the president is actually not doing any kind of debate prep and tries to bring the performance from last night to the debate stage with Joe Biden, he may find himself backed into a corner uh, up against a career politician who himself is often criticized for not being able to speak in a clear and concise manner. But at the end of the day, the president, uh, after last night's performance, has proven uh, now once again in a public setting that he oftentimes doesn't have the most accurate information to bring forward. So this obviously not the best foot forward for the president. You said never again. Will we see anything like this prior to the election? Well, I mean, look, there's a good chance that we may see the president sit down and do town halls on more friendly networks, uh, you know, whether it's Fox News or whether it's uh, the OANN network. But at the end of the day, you know, the president has oftentimes pushed back and criticized networks like CNN and NBC and even CBS recently. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if he does accept any kind of opportunity to come uh, and speak. But once again, this is a president who is driven by the media and a president who also then drives the media. So any opportunity to get him on screen is going to be kind of pumped up by those who even, you know, uh, may not really be uh, into having the president uh, sit down with them. So what was the reaction of Americans to see the president in this sort of uh, in this sort of platform with within with neutral voters as opposed to uh, his fans? Again, does this depend on what side of the base you're on, uh, how you react to this? It also depends on who actually is interested in what the president has to say. Last night's ratings came out and there were very few people that actually tuned in. It was just over three million. And in fact, Big Brother and another talent competition on network TV uh, scored higher ratings than what the president has to say. Uh, what does that, that say? This is indicative. Well, this is indicative of a country that is politically exhausted, uh, that has heard the president say the same things over and over again. And even when he's given an opportunity to kind of confront people who may not be in line with him, but potentially could be a swing vote, he still doesn't do anything to lure people in. The president, for three years now, has been talking directly to his base. That's what we heard last night, and that's simply why people are tired of tuning into politics right now, because it's like living Groundhog Day for the last four years. So in the end of the day, there's not really that many undecided voters. Uh, minds are pretty much made up, would you say? 
it's hard to see how there are any swing voters or at least a vast number of swing voters left in a country where political ideology has really been baked in over the last four years. You're either with President Trump or you're not with President Trump. It's hard to see how either of these candidates right now uh, are going to do anything to lure in new voters, uh, especially given where polling is right now that still shows that President Trump is lagging far behind, especially in the key swing states across the Midwest. Uh, what about COVID-19? Uh, how is this faring in America? Is uh, where we're hearing that numbers are on the decline in most states, still spiking in others. How much of this is still at the forefront? Well, I mean, look, last night the president played some greatest hits when he said that the U.S. is doing better than anyone else, despite the fact that the U.S. still is dealing with the highest uh, number of deaths uh, anywhere in this anywhere in the world, uh, and that numbers are actually rising. We had the highest death toll, the highest case count uh, yesterday for the first time uh, in several weeks, and there are unconfirmed reports right now that several people inside the White House have now contracted COVID-19, potentially from the number of rallies that the president has held over the last couple of weeks, uh, although the information is not being verified or confirmed, at least, uh, by the White House. So this is still a very uh, kind of key and critical uh, issue for the president uh, as he heads now, you know, only seven weeks to the election, as he continues to both down and up play uh, uh, the virus. Well, you have still a growing number of people dying. And remember, this country is very quickly on the approach to 200,000 deaths. And that number is not simply going to stop there. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. All right. Yesterday, uh, there was a lot of chatter about aluminum tariffs and them all of a sudden being dropped. You might remember uh, a few months ago, uh, the United States President, uh, Donald Trump, announced there was going to be a 10% tariff on Canadian aluminum entering into the United States. And obviously, lots of uh, people cranky about that. And um, right out of nowhere, uh, apparently, there was a bit of a flip-flop. And uh, the U.S. has decided to drop those tariffs. Uh, rumor coming out yesterday was that uh, this happened just hours uh, before Canada was to announce uh, uh, their own set of sanctions or tariffs or taxes, whatever you want to call it. And these would be key swing states for Donald Trump, which could affect his re-election, that that was the reason. Now, as uh, today breaks, we're finding out more about this actual deal, that uh, there could be other conditions uh, in the future, that uh, getting on with this deal uh, meant that we may have to take some, we, we may see something like this later on down the road, I guess is what I'm saying. Let's bring in Patrick LeBlanc, Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs. University of Ottawa and is with us now. Patrick, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. How about you? I'm doing well. Thank you. So what are your thoughts on all the, the chatter of the tariffs 24 hours later? You know, initially this was presented as Christia Freeling standing up to the president and and this was just uh, common sense prevailing. Now we're hearing that we may have given up something in order to get there. Where does this stand? Where are we right now in all of this? Well, it's, it's, I mean, right now what we know is that the, uh, the, the, the USTR, the U.S. Trade Representative, has announced that the, the tariffs would come off uh, because they had been imposed since August, so for about a, well, about a month. And uh, so that will stop, which is good news for the aluminum industry here in, in, in Canada. Um, and also, in a way, uh, it, also, it means that the uh, Canadian government is not going to impose uh, tariffs on about you know three point something billion dollars worth of goods coming from the United States into Canada, which 
obviously would have hurt uh, consumers for those goods uh, and also companies that uh, rely on these export on these imports uh, for their own production. So, you know, as we know, when when tariffs are imposed, uh, consumers uh, are the ones ultimately who lose. Uh, so, in, 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 in especially given the, the current uncertainty, uh, I, I think overall the agreement that uh, was announced yesterday uh, is good news. Now, did Canada commit to more that which has not been mentioned? Uh, that's not clear. Uh, there are rumors. Uh, we'll have to see exactly what that means. But we do know that whatever was announced yesterday uh, by the U.S. Uh, is temporary. So it's it's like more of a truth than the uh, uh, the end of the the, the conflict um, until the end of this year. Uh, so basically, after the election. Uh, maybe in a way the, the, the Canadians are hoping that uh, this will buy us time and that there will be a change in the White House and potentially in Congress, and therefore the uh, current uh, approach by the, to, to trade by the Trump administration will, will change, uh, hopefully, uh, under a Biden uh, administration. So that's, I think, it's the hope. And uh, the whole thing would go away by uh, January. I think that's, I, I would assume that that would be the plan. But at least for now, we're not going deeper into uh, some kind of trade war, if you want, or tension uh, when it comes to aluminum. And, 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 and that's the good news. So why the change of heart now? Why the flip-flop now by the U.S.? Well, in the, obviously, we, we don't know uh, officially. Uh, the, uh, the U.S. says that they, you know, they, they got this agreement with Canada, but what you know, what, what did Canada really agree not to impose its tariffs? I mean, that's the only thing that, that we can make sense of, right? Canada was threatening to retaliate, which it did the last time this happened in 2018. And ultimately, this was, again, temporarily resolved uh, when the, uh, the, the Kuzma, the USMCA, the United States, Canada, uh, Mexico agreement, which replaces NAFTA, was, was agreed to. And the Americans had agreed to on a kind of bilateral deal to, to remove the tariffs and Canada the same. Uh, hoping that this would help the USMCA pass in Congress, uh, because Congress certainly, uh, especially the, the Democrats, were uh, not happy with uh, the Trump administration on, on those tariffs. Uh, so it's a little bit of the same situation. Uh, as you mentioned uh, at the outset, uh, the uh, the retaliation, the tariffs that Canada was, was, was threatening, even though we didn't have the details, we could presume that they were targeted at states and districts that would hurt the Republicans and, and hoping that it could hurt them in the elections. And maybe there's been pressure uh, from the Republicans on the White House to say, look, you know, we're entering the final phase of the elections. Uh, this is the last thing we need. Uh, our states, our districts are already hurting because of the pandemic. Uh, we don't need to hurt them more with, with tariffs on, on goods that are produced in, 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 in our districts or states. So maybe that has had an influence. Uh, and uh, as a result of that, uh, they decided on these sort of quotas, uh, and uh, you know, and hoping that uh, Canada's uh, exports uh, to the U.S. will not uh, breach those those ceilings. And if they do, then the tariffs would apply to the entire uh, exports to the U.S. But uh, everyone seems to be quite confident that that's not going to happen, given the state of the economy. Now, as you mentioned, uh, the U.S. has said these are temporary. So, is this just? Uh, a temporary measure to get uh, Canada on track on in those swing states, and then once the election is over, we're back to where we are now. Well, it is a possibility. Uh, obviously, if if Trump wins again, uh, then we could expect that uh, in January, uh, unless there is some other deal. I mean, we know Trump loves deals, 
uh, unless there is another deal, the tariffs could be back on, uh, and, and then Canada would, you know, basically pull back its um, uh, its uh, retaliation and uh, would would re- reimpose the tariffs. Probably, if the U.S. did not want to move, obviously it would have less leverage to do so uh, because the, there would be no election. But nevertheless, you know, it would still hurt and and. Uh, you know, let's not forget, especially in Congress, uh, the uh, sorry, in the House of Representatives, you know, they are basically uh, campaigning all the time uh, because they have to be elected every two years. So that that potentially could have an impact. The same thing with, you know, half of the uh, sorry, a third of the Senate uh, seeking reelection in two years from now. So uh, it would still uh, have leverage, uh, although less than right now. But it, it's it's possible. I think the hope is that. Uh, Trump won't be there anymore. Uh, there would be, it would be, we would be dealing with President Biden, whom we expect to be much more friendly to Canada and not uh, basically attack allies and 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 claim that we are because our goods are threatening uh, the United States national security, which is ultimately, let's not forget, that's what the Americans uh, have said. That's the reason they they have just uh, on, on which they've justified the imposition of those tariffs is that our aluminium is a threat to their national mm. security. Uh, so therefore, they have to limit the amount of aluminium entering into the U.S. But it's just pure protectionism, and that's why Canada said, we don't buy your argument, so we will retaliate right away, even though technically uh, this immediate retaliation is illegal under both uh, our, our, the North American Free Trade Agreement, or the USMCA, which has replaced it, and the, the World Trade Organization. Uh, but because these, these, these tariffs have been so egregious, Canada felt uh, perfectly legitimized to uh, retali- threaten to retaliate, and, and in, it did in, in 2018-2019. You bring up uh, my next question for me, and, and uh, do we not have a free trade agreement, Patrick? We spent an awful long time renegotiating uh, the new NAFTA deal. Is it not worth the paper that Donald Trump puts his big Sharpie signature on? I mean, we see him holding up those things that he signed. Is that Are they not worth anything? Well, you know, the, 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 the problem is, is that when you have uh, a president uh, and an administration that um, is happy to do deals, but then is happy also to flout those deals, uh, that's kind of the problem, right? Uh, ideally, there should there is a, a dispute settlement process through which uh, we go through. We've done it certainly with softwood lumber. That has been the approach that Canada has pursued. But when the United States imposes tariffs uh, on our steel or aluminium, and, and, and it has done so obviously with other countries, it has threatened the Europeans with, impo- uh, with the imposition of tariffs on, on European cars for national security reasons. Now, I don't know how a Mercedes or a BMW could actually be a threat to the, US, the United States national security, but this is what Trump has been, has been doing. Uh, so in that sense, you know, then it's all about politics. It's no longer about the rules of the game. It's about politics. It's about flaunting those rules. It's about trying to force some kind of side deal. Uh, and, and, and Canada has no choice. If we don't do anything and, and we go through the, the legal process, it, it takes time, right? And then they, the, 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 the Americans will, will play for time, and, and ultimately we lose, our, our producers lose. So Canada, the, the Canadian government has said, no, we will retaliate and hurt you right away. And then hopefully we can, you know, that will force you to the negotiation table. 
and and we can make this go away. And and that's kind of what the deal that 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 was agreed to yesterday. It's still managed trade, which is not in the spirit of free trade that Donald Trump signed the USMCA. But as we know, he never he's not a free trader. Uh, Robert Lighthizer, Lighthizer, the U.S. trade representative, is not a free trader. They, they've been adamant that they, they, they are not. They are they're nationalists, protectionists, mercantilists, and, and that's how they negotiate. They, re, they wanted to renegotiate NAFTA, not to make it a better deal for all three countries, but to make it a better deal for the United States against Canada, against Mexico, and to some extent they did. Uh, but for us, you know, the, the, we, we have to, to play the game again in order to, to minimize the damage, because the threat was that Mr. Trump would pull out of NAFTA, and that would have been catastrophic for, for Canada. Uh, so we decided, okay, we'll renegotiate, we'll, we'll make, hopefully make things not as bad as they could be, and then the, our negotiators uh, negotiated very well, and, and ultimately, you know, we exchanged, what is it, four quarters for a dollar, more or less, and, and, and that's it, and hmm. we lost a little bit, but overall, we, we didn't lose that much, especially compared uh you know to to what we had before but it's always let's consider the alternative which is not the the, the best case scenario but which is the worst case scenario and that's kind of how it is with with this current uh, u.s administration which is unfortunate but that's how they they operate and even you know christia freeland uh, made reference to this yesterday when when she said you know common sense prevailed uh, a deal means nothing to this administration. It, it means nothing. I mean, a contract isn't worth the paper that it's printed on. Uh, as soon as something is signed, it's, you know, threatening of court or breaking a deal or da-da-da. I mean, it's just it's just a massive paper shovel, it seems. Well, you know, right now it seems that we bought time, right, uh, for yeah. our exporters. So that's good news, right? In the way, that's the only thing that Canada can do in this particular file is to make the tariffs go away. If If... Doing the deal on, on those quotas is, is what was needed for now, hoping that when there, if there is a new administration, that, that then the whole thing can just go away. Uh, then it, it's common sense. It's pragmatic and, 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 and it's effective. Now, if in a month from, uh, one from now, Trump and Lighthizer decide to change tack and say, you know what, we have this deal, but we, you know, we don't like it. The tariffs are coming back on. Then Canada will say, fine, you know, we have a nice list of, of our own tariffs, uh, retaliatory tariffs, and they're going to come back on. And, and that's how it's going to be. So in a way, the, the, threat, the, the, the threat of retaliation from the Canadian side has not gone away. It's still there. But, you know, that's why I called it. It's a truce, right? It's not the end you know, of the war. It's not the end of the war. It's a truce. Theoretically, Patrick, for those big signing ceremonies, the, uh, the president should be using one of those big kindergarten pencils rather than a Sharpie. <laughs> You know, the well, sh- you, you know, think with a sharpie, you think with a big black sharpie going through there that somehow the deal would be extra special. Really, it's not. You should be using a pencil. Well, you know, we I agree with you, but it's it's you know that's how it's been since he has been elected, and in fact, nothing. All new. the stories about how he does business is exactly like that. So, you know, unfortunately, in business, you could say we don't have to deal with Donald Trump, but in Canada, as Donald Trump president, we have no choice but to deal with the United States. And, and, and yes, we're, we're playing defense, but we, we still have leverage. And I think in this case, the, the threat of retaliation actually worked. I think that's how we got the, the yesterday's deal. Mm. And, and that's good news in the sense that, you know, uh, even if the U.S. is ten, ten times as big as we are, we are the largest chart trading partner of a, a, a large number of, of states in the U.S. And, and as a result of that, we can have influence and, and, and we're mm-hmm. using it, which is, that's the good news. 
Patrick LeBlanc has been with us, Associate Professor, Graduate School of Public and International Affairs, University of Ottawa. Patrick, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you very much. The the Trumpster's uh, Sharpie there. It's got that new invisible ink in it. So he does the big Donald Trump there with the big black Sharpie, and then as soon as you close that book up, it disappears. The signature's gone. <gasps> what happened? You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, we've talked uh, at great length as things have changed uh, in a COVID-19 world, uh, including our uh, impression of China and where they stand on the world stage. And uh, what was once an opportunity has now obviously become a threat to Canada. Uh, do we need to do more when it comes to China? Documents supplied to international media over the weekend have provided evidence of the country's attempts to identify people who could be attacked. These are Canadians. Uh, the uh, article by Matthew Fisher, uh, when China gets uh, up to no good, Canada must do more than wag a finger. A whack of documents supplied to some of international media over the weekend has provided evidence of China's attempts to identify Westerners, including nearly 4,000 Canadians who could be attacked through coercive social media and other types of social media or cyber warfare. To talk more about all of this, uh, let's bring in Matthew Fisher, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor to Global News. He is with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me on, Scott. Uh, Matthew, just in the last week, we've heard uh, stories about uh, China and if uh, and when their vaccine becomes available. Uh, the deal with Canada isn't necessarily one we can depend on. Uh, we've uh, heard of uh, research being done at Canadian universities that is ending up in the hands of the military for the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, we're hearing the U.S. Uh, warning citizens against travel to China and Hong Kong uh, due to arbitrary uh, detention. It goes on and goes on and goes on. Is this resonating at all in Canada with Canadian leaders? I think it is with one leader, the leader of the Conservative Party, Aaron O'Toole, uh, has been discussing uh, what Canada could do in response, and he has said it is a priority should he become Prime Minister. He's also said that one of the ways to lessen the impact or influence of China on Canada is to diversify our relationships in Asia and to go much deeper with existing relations, develop a few new ones, Japan and India being the most obvious cases the liberal government uh, is not perhaps as friendly as it was towards uh, the government in Beijing but they still have done nothing concrete and basically they're still at the stage of tutting about what China does in Hong Kong or to the Muslim Uyghur minority Uh, there's not been a word as far as I know from the government about this these most recent revelations that they've targeted thousands of Canadians. Uh, They're keeping files on them, including uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's daughter. And I don't know how old she is, but I think she's only about 11 or 12 or 14. That would give you an idea of how far China is trying to reach to see whether they can influence the debate. And, And today, the Globe and Mail has stories about how Huawei has been trying to influence journalists uh, academics, um, bureaucrats, uh, to come around to China's side uh, on all kinds of things, including Huawei. Uh, China has 
this offensive on all over the world. Canadians are paying attention. The polls, Ipsos had one recently. Uh, over 80% of Canadians now are very distrustful of China, don't want anything to do with them. That number has been dropping for several years, and now it's where we're at now with the Meng case, Huawei, and the two Michaels, I guess, is the biggest reasons, but all these other little pieces too. The government of the day today does not yet reflect that cynicism that Canadians have about China, but I think it inevitable that they will. How are they targeting individual Canadians? Well, right now, it is a collection of information, uh, and it's open source information. But, the, for example, they see that somebody uh, has something to do with Canada's nuclear industries, and our nuclear industries are, are not about weapons, of course. They're about power generation. And uh, they put them on a list. They rate them as to whether they are vulnerable to being convinced that China is a good country. Uh, they do this. They're doing this with thousands of people in Canada uh, worldwide. This uh, dump of documents that's come out of Shenzhen, which is a port very near to Hong Kong, is that a, a company there with military ties in China is keeping tabs on 37,000 people at least in the West. Uh, Canada's not the most targeted country, but nevertheless. If they're trying to look at thousands of Canadians here, uh, it would indicate that Canada is of some interest to them and they want to uh, run influence operations here uh, to get the story out. Uh, really, this is trying to, uh, I think, shape their story. It's not espionage as such. A lot of that, I think, is going on. But this has nothing to do with espionage. It's, it's spotting people who might somehow be able to help the Chinese cause. What about uh, the Chinese Communist Party's involvement in Canadian universities, specifically research and development? Lots mm -hmm. being said this week about uh, Canadian universities, uh, you know, unwillingly supplying information to uh, the Chinese military. Uh, how how much of uh, of a slave are Canadian universities to the money of China? Well, they are. They are. I've written about this before myself. In the past, or most recently, I think uh, maybe three or four months ago, uh, certainly uh, our intelligence services have been very aware of this. The first reference to them trying to do this, a public reference from somebody in the Canadian intelligence community was as far back as 2010. Uh, and that was Dick Fadden, who headed the spy agency then. He's now retired, right. but he speaks on this issue quite a lot. And... Uh, uh, the universities uh, are ranked in the world for their exposure to Chinese money and Chinese intelligence operations in, in a recent uh, survey. And Waterloo ended up being the fourth most penetrated yeah. university in Canada, or rather in the world. And three Canadian universities made the, made the top ten. Uh, they are... Um, a big influence in a lot of departments. They're interested in artificial intelligence. They're interested in robotics. They're interested in chemical warfare. There's the incident in Winnipeg uh, where they tried to gain access to research that could potentially be used in chemical warfare uh, or um, looking for medicines and vaccines. We also know that China 
has got a full-on offensive against all Western countries trying to steal all their vaccine research. Uh, and they've done this before, of course, in the military realm. Their stealth aircraft, for example, look an awful lot like American stealth aircraft. Mm. And it is believed, I mean, not believed, I think it's pretty well proven, they stole a lot of the plans of the F-35 uh, uh, stealth jet from the Americans uh, seven, eight, ten years ago. Do universities care? I mean, you know, when many were asked, they just say, hey, that's not our problem. We're all about, we're all about collaboration and, and you know, uh, making a better world. We don't care about politics. Uh, do the universities hold a responsibility here? Well, they certainly hold a responsibility. And I think they really do care. And I think their answers are an indication of that by trying to slough it off that this isn't really our responsibility. I because they become they, dependent on the financial aspect of this. They become dependent on the, on the money. And they say, well, if the Canadian government gives them visas to come and study in Canada, then it's not our responsibility at all. I think that's far too convenient a thing. What they should be looking at themselves when these big deals are cooked up with universities that have, are connected to military labs in China, they should look at those connections. A lot of this is publicly known stuff. And also, it should, they should look at what areas in science they're studying. Uh, Dick Fadden's opinion, and I think the opinion of others, I certainly agree with this, is why on earth are we allowing any Chinese students into Canada to uh, study in these super um, high-tech or high-science areas where there are direct uh, offsets or direct advantages, rather, uh, in terms of military research, how, how do any of these people get into Canada? The first instance with visas, and the second, why are our universities actively courting them? Uh, Waterloo, I know, has had a, a very big sustained program for years to go after Chinese research money, and China gets to keep all that research when they come to Canada and work on a project. We do get, I think, in most cases, access to this information ourselves. Not in all cases, but in most cases. But China also gets it, and China hauls it home. And this trawling and trolling operation by the Chinese is taking place not just in Canada. We have to remember, and what we must do is organize with other countries, because they're doing it in a big way all over Europe. They're doing it with Australia, and of course, they're doing it with the United States. And we each tend to look at these things in our own little silos, and there isn't a lot of coordination between the countries. The bottom line is we should just ban outright a lot of this kind of activity. If Chinese students want to come here for more benign studies, more general studies, and don't have military connections, great. But, you know, they keep on showing up in pictures of them wearing Chinese military uniforms, people who've come to North America to study end up being serving officers in the Chinese military, and we didn't know about it. Hmm. Matthew Fisher, fellow Canadian Global Affairs Institute and contributor to Global News. Matthew, thanks for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. Sorry to always be so down and cynical. No! That's the world <laughs> hey. I inhabit. I know. It's the truth. That's what we want to hear. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.